Greetings, everybody. This is your DPS for this week. We have a banger of an episode coming your way in just a couple of moments, but I want to introduce just what I'm up to over the coming couple of weeks. I'm excited. I'm jazzed. You know, I've been a podcast host now on DPS for four years. Look, honestly, sometimes I'm more enthusiastic about the show than others. Sometimes I just can't wait to interview people and just throw out episodes at light speed. Other times I'm like, fuck, there's there's really nothing to talk about right now. This is a really depressing time to be a socialist and I don't want to think about politics. I want to think about anything else other than politics. And so I'd sort of begrudgingly trudge along. I'm I'm gassed up these days though, y'all. I'm excited. I'm excited not because we're in the doldrums of the Biden administration. I'm excited because I think the socialist movement has an opportunity to consolidate some of its insights that have been hard fought and hard won over the past you know, four or five, six years. And I'm talking about in the wake of the Corbin moment, in the wake of the Bernie wave, in the wake of the explosion in DSA and organizations like Momentum in the UK. And we're going to be reflecting on all of those things in the coming weeks and months leading up in particular to the DSA convention this summer. It's hard to believe for those of you who have been following DSA and DPS over the past four or five years. It seems like we are leading up to the 2017 convention just yesterday those plucky days of the early Bernie wave, you know, when, you know, guys like Larry website roamed Twitter trying to convince people uh, to join DSA. Uh, we're in a very different political landscape now. We've all, we're all growed up. We're all growed up now, you might say. We're no longer, you know, green or wet behind the ears or whatever, you know, sketchy metaphors you might say about the nascent left of 2016, 2017. We got some years of experience behind us. We campaigned for Bernie. We learned lessons about what it means to win power inside and outside the state. And we're, you know, for all of our differences on the American left, we have in large part coalesced around a broad set of understandings and strategies about our orientation to the Democratic Party, for example, about you know the usefulness of, of utilizing Democratic Party ballot lines and, and hosting insurgent challengers inside of the party. You know, all of the gains that we have made due to these amazing spokespersons for democratic socialism and progressive politics over the past four or five years cannot be denied. And yet we cannot rest on our laurels and just hope that building something inside and around the Democratic Party will suffice. We have to think about building real institutional power in and around the working class and all of the other associated classes in society to build something tangible that can last and go beyond just being a junior partner to the Democratic Party. We all understand that. Now, they're like, you know, with Baskin Robbins or what have you, there are many thousands of flavors of, of that particular ice cream out there. You know, uh, we all agree about a broad set of principles and tactics and strategies, but we have different uh, nuances and approaches to those things. And I'm really looking forward to having those arguments and debates out in the open. We need to bring those out from behind the closed doors and the group chats and have them in a comradely and productive fashion out in the open so that we can bring everyone along with us. And that's what we're going to be doing on DPS in this series that has been underway now for a little while called This American Left. So today I've got Eric Blanc talking about the dirty break strategy and the formation of the UK Labor Party and what that might mean for the contemporary movement 
of socialist politics in the United States and beyond. I've got Brad Crowder coming on from the Collective Power Network, talking about very similar themes, but from a slightly different perspective. I've got Chris Maizano coming on, talking about a piece that he wrote for uh, one of DSA's publications, talking about the the fault lines of today's left and, and the challenges that are ahead for us. Uh, Chris is going to be a first-time guest, although he's somebody I've been wanting to get on the show for a long time. I'm also fortunate enough to have on James Schneider coming up in April. He is a co-founder of Momentum. He also took care of communications, I believe, and some PR stuff for Jeremy Corbyn when he was the head of the Labor Party. And uh, we're going to be talking about this phenomenal series that James has been producing over there with our friends at Novara about the British left, about the fault lines, about our, you know, about the movement, the, the, the demands, the challenges, the lessons, and so on and so forth. It's a real masterpiece of political assessment, and I can't wait to have James on to talk about that. So I've got a really fantastic and exciting lineup ahead of you guys. And as per usual, I've blathered on enough in this wind-up. We should get to Eric Blanc really soon. But before I do that, I want to remind you all that this show is free to listen to, but it is not free to make. So I need your support to continue doing this. Head over to patreon.com slash pundits. The link is in the show notes. Thank you to all of my patrons. You all are the real MVPs. You make this happen on a daily basis. I could not do it without your generous support. Thank you so much for supporting this political project and like literally making it possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. So again, patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at a level of your choosing. All right. On with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me on this episode of This American Left a new series that we are running here on DPS to try to talk about some of the most important debates inside of the American left and international left for that matter. Joining us today to talk about that is Eric Blanc. He is the author of Red State Revolt, for which he last appeared on this podcast a couple of years ago to talk about the teacher strikes across the country. He is a DSA member and Jacobin contributor and the author of a fascinating piece, the kind of piece that as soon as I see it coming out of Jacobin magazine, I break my neck and strain my fingers tapping out a message on Twitter to him to try to get him on the show. It's called The Birth of the Labor Party Has Many Lessons for Socialists Today. Eric, quite a wind-up. Apologies for that. How you doing, my man? Uh, I'm surviving. I'm glad to be on the show, though. It's been a rough year for all of us. Last time we had you on the show, things were looking quite differently. <laughs> I saw, Actually, I saw you waxing poetic last uh, it was yesterday on Twitter about this time last year and the Nevada caucuses and the victories that Bernie Sanders had there and the kind of heartening moment and compare and contrast to today. You know, you took up this research on uh, the birth of the Labor Party out of the Liberal Party in the, in the UK. And I don't want to scare anybody away, certainly not anybody in the US who's going to say, oh, God, you're gonna, you guys are going to lose me in historical nuance and particularity. It's going to be a snooze fest. I don't know anything about the Labor Party. I'm going to go listen to the to the latest episode of Chapo, right? <laughs> I don't want to scare anybody off. So contextualize this for us. Let's talk about that excitement coming out of the Bernie moment, 
the victories in Nevada, how quickly that turned around. And maybe, you know, I'm, I'm guessing here, I'm spitballing, but I, I, I think it's probably a pretty good guess that, that, that contrast in emotions from just being elated in, at the height of victory to the defeat. And of course, in the pandemic, I'm, I'm assuming that contrast led you to take solace in the history of the formation of the Labor Party as a way of envisioning how we go forward on the American left. Right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. The the fact that it was just a year ago, you know, almost to the day that Bernie won Nevada, yeah, this led me to a lot of just thinking about kind of the roller coaster we've been over experiencing this last year. And the reality is that the Bernie's loss, but also the amazing victories that the campaign entailed, even though he didn't end up getting the nomination, you know, both of those things should be cause for reflection. And, and and I think that after Bernie lost the nomination, a lot of people, including myself, were understandably demoralized because it felt like we missed this narrow opportunity to dramatically change the course of U.S. and world history. To a certain extent, I think that's true. That being said, the reality is that it takes a lot of power to change the world. It takes a lot of organization. And I think the big lesson then that we learned from the Bernie campaign is there's really only so far you can go in this country or for that matter in the UK, you can look at the similar lessons from the Corbyn campaign. There's only so far you can go without strong working class organization that just good messaging, good demands, compelling leaders isn't enough. And so that raises the question then, you know, what do we do? How do we build that power? And understandably one of the big debates for the last century and including today is how do we relate to the Democratic Party? Because on the one hand, we've seen, I think, conclusively that working within the Democratic Party by primarying establishment Democrats has been extremely fruitful and has finally helped the left break out of its marginality of the last 60, 70 years. So we have that experience. On the other hand, that's created all sorts of strategic and tactical dilemmas how do we differentiate ourselves from Biden and Pelosi? How do we build up organization without coming off as too far left? How do we envision a path forward in which we can be something more than a junior partner to corporate Democrats? It was in that context that I decided to go and try to read about the British experience to see you know, what lessons could we draw from a successful effort that eventually led workers to work within the equivalent of the Democratic Party of the time, which was the Liberal Party, but eventually displace it. And if we want to do something like that today, I don't think we can afford to really look at one of the most successful examples in a similar context to our own. Right on, right on. And just to put get, put, put a little finer point on the context here for listeners, um, and I, I want to do this because, first of all, this is an episode of This American Left. I've only done a couple episodes of this. I'd like to do a lot more. And, and what I'm trying to do is sort of break down the fourth wall, open the sort of uh, the doors to these kind of insider, you know, inside baseball backroom conversations on the American organizational left. And that is the D- primarily the DSA left. You know, some of these con- you know, debates and conversations, uh, you know, when they when they play out on Twitter, of course, things get to, you know, there's always more like, you know, more smoke than fire. When they play out in the kind of gossip networks and all the rest of it, it's always you know, just it's not optimal. So I'm trying to have some real substantive debates about the dilemmas and the and the paths forward. And you know, your dirty break strategy um, from a few years ago, maybe several years ago now, has uh, you know 
received a lot of criticism, a lot of support, a lot of um, you know, a lot of debate and discussion about DSA as an organization, how it relates to the Democratic Party in in all directions. And it's very, very difficult. This is a multi-sided approach that you're gonna have to have as the history that you and you know that you detail and the Labor Party's formation, not only did they have people who, uh, you know, were making what, at least in my estimation, I won't hold you to this, in my estimation to be like ultra left arguments and, and isolationist arguments that proved to be, let's say, less than optimal for a variety of reasons. But they also had people, of course, to their right who were arguing for collapsing into existing liberal party structures. And so, you know, this isn't just a kind of a, a two-sided debate between this party versus that party of, of you know, partisans. Uh, this is a multi-faceted, multi-sided uh, dilemma. And you, in, in this is embodied in no better, you know, place than in DSA, where you have people who were kind of more traditionalists, kind of more traditional 1960s era radicals uh, trying to go in and through the institutions and transform the Democratic Party from the inside. You have, of course, people who, again, I would uh, call ultra leftists who would like to break entirely with the party immediately. I mean, they wouldn't break with the party like, you know, yesterday. And they find running on ballot lines to be wrong headed. Contextualize your project for us. Break down that fourth wall for this episode of This American Left. Sure. So as you mentioned, Historically, um, and up until very recently, there was two strategies that were hegemonic on the U.S. left. One was what you could call a clean break strategy, which is sort of on principle at all times, you never run as a Democrat or Republican. You never support a Democrat or Republican. And the idea being that somehow if you do that, you will mislead the workers. You will never build class organization or class power, and you'll just inevitably get co-opted into the status quo. And, you know, there's it's a plausibility to that argument because a lot of mass workers' parties throughout the world were built in a similar fashion. The problem is that it doesn't really take into account the particularities of the U.S. political context, specifically just how hard it is to build third parties because of the electoral arrangements. So in practice, that type of approach sounds good on paper, but has led almost every time to marginal groups. And the, you know, the most recent examples would be something like the Green Party or uh, more recently something like the Movement for People's Party, in which there's no real there there. So it sounds kind of radical, and, um, and it's good to criticize the Democratic Party establishment. There's no you know, coherent or viable strategy to win over the millions of workers who still look to the Democratic Party today and who, uh, not wrongly, are unwilling to spoil their vote, so-called, and risk a Republican victory just to make a statement. So on the one hand, you have that strategy, which still actually, I think, imbues a lot of people both outside of inside DSA, even if some people who maybe think it's a right in the short term to run as Democrats, I think might still kind of cling to the basic tenets of that strategy insofar as it underestimates how long it will take to build a mass workers party and the dilemmas that the U.S. electoral context imposes on us, whether we like it or not. Right. So and if I, if I may jump in be. really quickly, I'm curious to get your take on this because I think you're onto something here. It's that, you know, there is a um, a sort of wishy-washy acceptance of running on Democratic Party ballot lines. It's wishy-washy insofar as, ah, sure, uh, I'll knock on some doors uh, for somebody who's, you know, for a radical who's running on a Democratic Party ballot line, a clear, obvious radical, Right. But then when I then when this person gets into the halls of power, I expect them to do everything that I want them to do all the time. 
right? Which is to say that, you know, I accept the structuration of the American political process in terms of, you know, the process of elections, but I, I totally denounce the, the idea that, you know, therefore, you know, our candidates are going to have to act in pragmatic ways from time to time once they get into the halls of power. And that, of course, is it's easy to it's easy to mock me. <laughs> me, for example, saying what I have just said, mock me as just a you know offering up a blank check apology for any action that you know is anti-worker or anti-movement from our politicians, and so it's a tough it's a tough place to defend. Uh, you know, I even I even find myself like, damn it, what am I going to say? Because now I'm just going to sound like an apologist asshole. H- how do you approach a question like that? I think we just have to accept the reality that mass politics, by which I mean like politics oriented towards millions of people rather than thousands necessarily entails compromises and it entails wagers about what may or may not happen. And it sort of necessarily means you're going to bend either to going towards too far towards getting co-opted. Uh, and sometimes you might bend towards being too ultra left. And, you know, and so much of that is just because it's hard to do politics. It's hard to make wagers. And I think we need to just be okay with that and not sort of lose our heads every time right. uh, something happens that we don't like, the art of politics then is um, reassessing in the light of experience from a context and a strategy of trying to build working class power. You know, so that's the strategy and the tactics are necessarily going to be messy. And I think just my experience has been that the more I've organized over the years, and I hope that the more some other folks who are maybe newer to politics and maybe a little bit like self-righteous right now, the more you do this, the more you realize this dynamic that just at a certain point, there is no formula, there are no, like, you know, clear rules that you follow in every context. And that's the message we have to sort of train organizers in. And I I don't expect everyone to immediately get it. When I was 18, I just wanted to have like a revolution, you know, ASAP. And I was happy to denounce everybody to my right. So I kind of get the ethos there. But I, I do think that we need to win people to a more sober approach. Yeah, I think you and I were both, uh, we both came up in our like uh, late teens and early 20s in church basements. And as I always say, I'll speak for myself here, not for you. I don't want to go back to a fucking church basement. Now, if we're talking about in the midst of like a union strike or a tenant rights workers or you know, stri- tenant strike or something more localized, wherein like, hey, it makes sense to meet in a church basement. Let's do it. But I mean, I'm talking about those weekly meetings where you discuss resolutions that have no bearing on any reality anywhere uh, with the same eight comrades. You know, <laughs> and, uh, if you if you gain one new member in a year, it's like a, a, a great success. Like we don't want to go back to church basements as a socialist movement, as a workers' movement, and and we don't have to. But that does mean that we're going to have to grapple with a far more complex set of realities and and compromises. And I think you're absolutely right in maybe taking a collective deep breath following the the intensity of emotion surrounding the Bernie campaign, right? It's almost like, you know, I've, I've mentioned this with a couple of recent guests. It's almost like, you know, people would be forgiven if, if they continue to chase that dopamine high, Right. Um, that that high, that feeling of of intensity and, and 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 clarity of purpose that we all had during the Bernie campaign, and I think that's really infusing a lot of the like hullabaloo around force the vote and some of these other uh, other you know the, the movement for the People's Party and the kind of like. It's one thing to criticize the Democratic Party. I am absolutely here for that. Let's do it all day. It's another thing to sort of almost kind of given to the narrative of the Democratic Party as this sort of like hegemonic, unbreachable, all-powerful political entity, which it is not. 
if you say, oh, there goes the Democrats doing what the Democrats do again. Oh, they're, you know, they're there. Of course, that's what Pelosi's going to do. She's all powerful and we can't possibly stop her. Well, then what's the point? We might as well just go do something else, Eric. We might as well throw up our hands if that's the case. <laughs> and so it's almost like, you know, a lot of self-defeating narratives as a, as a militant left that I'm seeing coming out of the latest kind of post-Bernie wave of uh, socialist media punditry and, and, and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be talking about all of that today, but we're going to be talking about it by way of its historical kind of cross-national comparative project with the UK Labour Party. So let's let's quickly finish this conversation. I know that um, I've, I've cut you off on several occasions to try to clarify matters, uh, but you were in the middle of sort of um, outlining the stakes of the debate about, you know, what to do with the Democratic Party and, and how to organize as an independent left. No, but, you know, I, I agree with everything you just said. And the point there being that on the one hand, you have this kind of ultra-left approach um, as a shorthand is a good way to describe it. But, you know, we should be honest that just as important, I think, historically, maybe not for the far left, but at least for the broader left and sort of liberal left generally, has been a tendency to not really build up independent workers organization or politics while doing Democratic Party work. Mm-hmm. You know, this this has surely been as big of a problem. And we've seen that in the 1930s and 1960s, in which the left oftentimes just let itself become sort of a loyal subordinate junior partner to the democratic party establishment Mm -hmm. and that i think ultimately is also a huge strategic problem because our approach has to be to even if we're working within the democratic party for the foreseeable future to change that dynamic we don't want to be the subordinate partners as a minority to the likes of biden and pelosi we want to be leading a mass workers party we want to be leading a party that can speak to millions of workers and that necessarily i think entails a more confrontational approach with the democratic party establishment Mm -hmm. and requires keeping our eyes on the prize of you know a workers party with its own ballot line so this has been the contours of the debate in dsa i think the first thing to say is it's extremely positive development that i would say the majority of active members of dsa right now share a short-term perspective about what we should be doing Um, which is towards building independent socialist candidacies and organization on the Democratic Party ballot line. So I do think that there's a short-term consensus on the bulk of what we should be doing electorally. The problem then is to what extent does this short-term approach lead to the power we need to get in the long-term and what of our strategy to move from here to where we need to get to. And that's really what the debate in DSA is, um, which agrees on a lot today, but has differences over, for instance, whether the current approach of DSA can be sort of continued indefinitely, or whether we should expect that at a certain point, the Democratic Party establishment, for instance, might try to constrict space within the party, which would force us out, or for instance, whether we might at a certain point be able to take over the Democratic Party by priming up the establishment. All of these are live debates um, that have repercussions for short-term strategy. So that argument I'm trying to put forward in this article is to lay out, you know, what I call a dirty break approach, which is agree. We need to, in the short term, build independent organization. The focus isn't to build a new party. Focus is building power. But I think that we should expect that for that project to succeed sooner or later, we need a mass workers party of our own with its own ballot line. And I think that that's more likely going to be us building strength until we get pushed out of the Democratic Party. But I think we should be open 
to the fact that it's conceivable we could primary out the establishment. So we should be open to both of those approaches. But either one necessarily entails a clash and a decisive break with the Democratic Party institutionally, if not necessarily the ballot line. That remains to be seen. Right. I mean, I think, first of all, just a, a reflection I had as you started that uh, really uh, interesting um, conclusion to our opening here is that uh, isn't it nice to be debating this instead of like the uh, the class nature of the uh, the Russian uh, worker state, you know, following <laughs> following Stalin or, or what have you, you know, like a hundred percent. I mean, it's amazing when people say, you know, Bernie's campaigns, you know, were failures in 2016 or 2020. I was like, like, what are you smoking? Compared is, to what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just like the fact that we actually have some power and we have some ability to intervene in people's lives in a meaningful way and have a national platform. This is a game changer. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime, certainly not before 2016. So, yeah, people should not underestimate. As far, we have a long way to go, but it's not like we're just back at square one. Yeah, I mean, I, we need to exercise a little humility as a left. I mean, and some just reflection of, on on our on the just the past decade. I mean, I have you know we're not that old, Eric. I mean, I not as not as young as we used to be, but we've been around long enough to see just an unbelievable change um, in our prospects and the and the and the reality of of the kind of debates that we're we're tackling have much more immediate you know um, impacts on on the lives of millions of people as opposed to you know. Whether or not, you know, it's a degenerated worker state or whatever the fuck Tony Cliff said, right? <laughs> you know, about the nature of, you know, uh, uh, Russian society post-revolution, right? You know, I mean, this is, these, were the, these are the most heated debates. You know, friendships were, were ruptured and, uh, you, know, I'm, you know, fistfights nearly broke out at, at conventions across the country and these leftist sects around such questions. And today, instead of that, we're, we're thinking seriously and practically about how to possibly build for a break from this, you know, uh, this duopoly that we've been, um, you know, living under for many over 150 years, uh, over 170 years in, in this country. And so exciting stuff. As you mentioned, it's likely that this will play out in a number of ways. We don't know. But the one thing that we do know is that the debate has been refined in large part, not because of arguments that happen uh, across you know, partisan lines, but because of action. We don't have to argue anymore about whether running on a Democratic Party ballot line is a viable strategy because we've seen it. Someone went out there and tried it. Lots of people went out there and tried it, and it's been incredibly successful. And so it's also quite likely that uh, with this history that we're about to lay out here that you know these, these, these aren't these dilemmas and these debates are not going to be solved by you know us you know throwing hot air into the uh, online stratosphere although we're going to do a lot of that today uh, but uh, but they're going to ultimately be solved uh, by in practice by trying and seeing what happens um, and yeah, I think um, that's right and I, and I think that's one of the maybe lessons of the history we're, we're going to discuss is the most successful socialists in the UK were the ones who were able to reassess and readjust in the light of experience. That didn't mean like not having politics. It didn't mean just sort of going out and doing good things because if you don't have a strategy, you're going to tend to just bend to other pressures, but you do need to be able to um, have a really sober look at what's working, you know? And it's funny, sometimes people criticize me or others say, well, you changed your position from what, was, you know, what it was two years ago. And I was like, yeah, like a lot <laughs> has happened. You know, it's a, it's a little bit bizarre to take that as as a bad thing rather than a good thing. I think that's yeah. really important to constantly be reassessing our strategies and our tactics in light of what's working, what's not working. To me, that's what politics is. 
That's right. And it's it just as likely as it is that we have this sort of glorious break from the Democratic Party. Uh, is is that what happened to, as, as you uh, account and Ramsey McDonald recounted um, with the formation of the Labor Party? They didn't so much – they weren't so much uh, kicked out of the Liberal Party – or sorry, they didn't so much break from the – I spoiled the plot. This is why I don't tell jokes, Eric. I'm a terrible comedian. <laughs> they didn't so much – they didn't so much break from the Liberal Party as they were kicked out. And the important thing is when that happens, when power uh, sort of retrenches itself inside the Democratic Party establishment and they're able to somehow foreclose our um, further advancement using the party instrumentally, we need to be ready with our own institutions in order to take full advantage of, of this rift. And that's exactly what happened with the UK Labor Party. So let's dive into this. Let's, let's pull back now uh, in, in this uh, sort of part two of the conversation. What was it? Provide some context for us. Um, what was it about the UK Labor Party experience that um, led you to seek uh, some solace, some you know, inspiration in, in, its, in its foundation? Yeah, I think there's two big points to start with. The first is the fact that there's a Labour Party in the UK at all is in some ways an inspiration, um, you know, for all of its limitations. The reality is that British electoral context has a lot of the same obstacles to forming a Labour Party in the United States. And what that looks like, for instance is you have the spoiler problem because of uh, what's called first-past-the-post voting, which is more or less winner-takes-all voting. It means that it's very hard for a third party to displace one of the two major parties because you risk almost at all times splitting the left vote. And so voters really understandably are reluctant to vote for you if it's going to mean the reactionaries take power. And people use this argument all the time to say it's impossible, therefore, to have an independent workers' party in the United States. But in a similar context, they did do it in the UK. So that should be at a minimum a pause for reflection um, when people say certain things are impossible. On the other hand, the UK experience is very enlightening because contrary to the clean break strategy in particular, it did not come about just because a small group of leftists and workers and socialists built their party and kind of like field of dreams, build it and they will come, right? This idea that, you know, you start small, but beautiful, and eventually workers will see the light. In fact, that was attempted, and it failed miserably. And we can talk about that more. But the reality was that they built a mass workers party in large part by doing what we're doing now in DSA, which is intervening within the hegemonic liberal party to build up an independent class profile, independent class organization, and to kind of heighten the contradictions in the direction of socialists building enough power that they could either displace the existing leadership of that party or have enough power to form their own party. Ultimately, they got pushed out in um, the 1890s and the dominant approach from like the 1890s up through 1918, when the Labour Party finally became the second party in the UK electoral arena, was to run more and more as independents. So the broad sweep then of what happened is from the 1860s through more or less the 1890s, 30, uh, three decades, you know, quite a bit of time, the dominant approach was exclusively within the Liberal Party. And then for about 20 years after that, you had a slow process of divorce in which there was still a lot of work within the Liberals, but more and more workers started uh, organizing also on the outside, eventually displacing the Liberals. And so it's just worth keeping in mind that took a, 
quite a bit of time. So the idea that we're just going to sort of declare a workers' party tomorrow or say we're going to split away in two years, I think that seems highly improbable just on the face of it based on at least this experience. Right. So as you uh, sort of lay out here, the Labor Representation League, LRL, was founded in 1869. They were fighting for working class legislation. This was in the midst of the kind of, um, you know, the fight for mass enfranchisement that we oftentimes take for granted. I mean, we really, we not often, we, we absolutely, we take that for granted, Eric. <laughs> you know, I want to say that categorically. Um, I've, I've worked with some, in my academic days, I worked with some guy, Dennis Pilon at York University, one of Leo Panich's uh, colleagues at the time, and others who talked about the role of socialists in expanding the franchise and getting some political representation. So the idea that a working man uh, and, and, you know, that is a gendered term, unfortunately, at this point in time, a working man in 1869 uh, could potentially have some representation in these houses of parliament. I mean, these weren't just purely gifts from enlightened bureaucrats and aristocrats, you know, uh, th these were hard, hard. I mean, we say hard fought nowadays. We, we don't even know the meaning. OK, people bled, were tortured and died uh, en masse uh, for these reforms that would enable uh, working people to have some kind of political representation in the midst of that just horrific industrial like revolution that uh, that they that uh, they undertook in, in that in that country I mean it is it is no foregone conclusion that the 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 just abject suffering of the working class as as documented by you know Friedrich Engels and, and many others. Uh, there's no. It was no foregone conclusion that these people would would be able to rise up and represent themselves as a class, uh, was it? Yeah, I mean, what you said is right. We take all of this stuff for granted. Um, in the British context, it took a mass, almost revolutionary movement to win suffrage. That was Chartism. You know, right. some people can look that up. If it hadn't been for this mass movement of workers to force open the electoral system, you wouldn't have had the space. To even get this process going. And on the other hand, because workers took that action, it forced the Liberal Party to, in a somewhat distorted way, take action around electoral reform. And so you can understand then why so many workers for decades were loyal to the Liberal Party, because it was the Liberal Party against the Tories, the conservatives, that had passed the laws that enfranchised, you know, really millions of workers, at that time mostly men, um, but that was still a major gain. And so it was in that context that you had this dilemma, because on the one hand, the Liberal Party had fought and won some significant reforms for workers, particularly politically. On the other hand, it was led by the representatives of their bosses. You know, yeah, the Liberal yeah. Party, like the Democrats, was led by uh, rich people and industrialists. And so in that context, what do you do? Workers and their representatives started to run within the Liberal Party, but with an independent workers profile. And that was primarily came to be known as Lib Labs, liberal labor you know, activists. And so you had union members running and winning on the liberal party line, but with their own distinct politics and oftentimes challenging the leadership, in particular around you know, union rights, economic reforms, things like that. And so you had this contradictory situation, very similar to what you have in the Democratic Party today, with a capitalist-led party, but with an independent workers' representation within it. And that ultimately led to all sorts of contradictions that eventually exploded. 
Right. I mean, one of the hardest things about studying this history is something that I encountered and you undoubtedly encountered in researching this piece when I read Ralph Miliband's Parliamentary Socialism. That book is a strange book coming from a guy who at the time was like reading way too much Marx and Althusser. More, more, more the weirdness coming mostly from the Althusser, not the Marx. But to read this kind of like, you know, this deep history of the British Labor Party was like you know, with all of these acronyms and these little groups and these sort of mark, these, these sects and these split aways that, you know, produce more acronyms. Uh, it's, it's impossible to follow the history. So uh, laudable, but we can sort of collapse this in this sort of a broad sort of lib lab movement that was comprised of say more kind of like stridently revolutionary socialists who were quite literally ready to burn it all down at, at moments notice the, the revolutionary socialist um, current in Britain in that time was very strong. You know, and, and with, you know, that, that lib labs were also comprised of, of people who were far more institutionally minded, you might say. And and so a uh, very broad movement that, you know, <laughs> by the way, looks a whole hell of a lot like the American left, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, yeah, that's right. And and I think it's just it's worth talking a little bit more about why the revolutionary socialists mm-hmm. failed, because right. that wasn't obvious at the time. It, you know, they actually really they went to consider themselves lib labs. Because their their defining feature was basically like the hardcore anti democratic party people today is just right. to denounce the liberal party at every time and they starting in like the 1880s tried to form something like the German Social Democratic Party in the UK and so mm-hmm. this was the Social Democratic Federation and their politics on paper were almost identical to the German socialists who were extremely successful you know they they had millions of people and and so it, it was surprising I think to them that they didn't catch on that the same approach didn't work in the UK. And there's a huge lesson there though, for us that some of their members eventually learned and, and, and moved on. And some of them stuck with it despite you know, their complete marginality. And the big lesson is that political context really does matter. It's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's not insignificant what type of political regime you're under. And it's not just that like, maybe that makes the tempo of things different. It actually just makes the course of things different, which is to say that in the UK, like in the United States, it was maybe ironically, the relative breadth of democracy compared to a lot of other countries, the fact that so many workers could vote, created a space within the parliamentary system um, that was occupied by workers, they had an investment in it. And that took the form in the UK system and in the United States today, in large part of workers and unions supporting a liberal capitalist party. And so in that context, to think you could immediately sort of just form a third party, especially when electoral law made it so that that attempt would almost inevitably in the short term lead the Republicans or the Tories, depending on which country we're in, to win, was a huge underestimation of the differences between you know, our political context in the context of like semi-authoritarian Germany under the Kaiser, let alone the Bolsheviks, because, you know, this is the same problem we've seen replicated over and over again, where socialists in the United States or other advanced capitalist democracies have tried to replicate tactics and strategies uh, imported from really different political contexts. And so I do think that we should question um, the extent to which that type of thinking still informs some of our our assumptions about what's going to work in the United States. Right. I mean, we can we can argue over that. We can debate it until we turn blue in the face and, and we will and I will and you will. And that's fine. That's good. We, we need a good uh, hearty discourse. But the reality is that, you know, th- those debates weren't solved as, as you and as you write, uh, you know, as you detail extensively in your piece. Those are, debates were not solved as debates. They were solved in practice. And um, 
tell us about the kind of pitfalls and traps encountered by that social democratic federation in Britain that sort of run parallel to the experience of the broad sort of revolutionary far left in the United States. Yeah. So they didn't get anywhere. That's the short version. They really just didn't get anywhere. They, 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 they remained a small sect until they dissolved in 1911. Luckily, some of their leaders on a local level learned from that experience and tried mm-hmm. to start doing something more pragmatic. And what that looked like was initially running within the liberal party, but trying to push things forward and not just sort of accept the existing contours of politics and not be loyal opposition, but to, you know, strategically intervene to start building up independent class power. And that combined with sort of this broader lib lab tradition of running union members within the liberal party started creating huge conflicts within the liberal party because the liberal party machine was completely unwilling to allow most workers to run as candidates. So this is an important dynamic that really ultimately leads to the formation of the Labor Party mm-hmm. is because the Liberal Party was led by, you know, industrialists and, um, you know, upper class forces, they were willing to tolerate a certain amount of labor representation, but not that much, certainly not commensurate with the fact that workers were the largest class in society. And so over and over again, you have these conflicts on a local level in which workers and unions try to get their candidates sort of to be the official candidates of the Liberal Party for Parliament, and the machine says no. And it was in that context that you have Ramsey McDonald, who had been a liberal, and you quoted him correctly saying, look, we didn't leave the Liberal Party, we got kicked out. The Liberal Party establishment just didn't create the space to allow workers to continue working within it. And they really forced them out in that sense. That really happened starting in the early 1890s, um, but it doesn't fully come to fruition for another two decades. So you have over and over again, people trying to change the liberals, trying to see if they can isolate the reactionaries. And you're right. This debate wasn't one because leftists just put forward good ideas. It was one through the experience of trying to transform the liberal party and that failing. And I think in that sense, there is an important lesson for the American experience today is I don't think we should sort of counterpose efforts to take over the Democratic Party to efforts to even potentially break away. Because there's no conceivable way you're going to be able to have millions of workers eventually want to form a third party if that's the only way forward, if we haven't collectively gone through the experience of pushing things as far as we can go within the Democrats. You know, seeing, is it possible to isolate the reactionaries? Is it possible to like Bernie Sanders? You know, we almost did it or we came close. And I don't think we can foreclose the possibility that something like that could actually go further in the United States, because this is an important comparative differences. Unlike in the UK, where party machines uh, had a final say over candidate selection, in the United States, the ballot is determined by primaries now. So you actually have more space for insurgent candidacies. And you fight it out against the establishment by trying to win primaries like AOC against the establishment. No, that terrain could get closed. But it does create, I think, more of a long term dynamic of contestation than maybe was possible in the UK context. Right. As um, our both of our a mentor of both of ours, uh, Leo Panich, you revealed to me off air that uh, you consulted with Leo during the early phases of conceiving this project of, you know, re- researching the history of the Labor Party, which was a, an excellent choice. I myself was his grad assistant and and hung out and studied in his office for a couple of years at York. And I have never seen a much uh, more inspiring library 
than the one that was in his office of, of just labor party books that have been out of print and pamphlets and all the rest of it. He's been compiling that he had compiled since at least uh, 1968, I believe, if not earlier. Um, so you went to the right place and he was a, a, a great mentor of both of ours. And um, he used to remind me on this very show and I'm sure he, you and him, you, he and you had some serious conversations about this privately as well, that things are far more open in the American political context, aren't they? Because our ballot lines, our party system is not so bureaucratized. And so there are far more openings for us to <laughs> instrumentally wield the sort of legal categories in our electoral system in ways that were not open to the British Labor Party. So therefore, it's even more of a should be even more of a boon to our cause here in, in the U.S. to use the Labor Party as as inspiration, because if they could do it in the kind of um, somewhat stultified bureaucratic uh, party, you know, legal system that they have over there, then there's no no reason we can't do it here. Um, yeah, we've seen that, that. We've seen that in practice. Yeah, I think that again, it was practice is a stronger argument than you know the best written article on that case. Right, right on, right on. Let's get into the formation of the Labor Party. They didn't have a lot of success in the very beginning, did they? But they wielded a sort of more kind of pragmatic orientation to politics until their moment arrived. Talk about that moment. Yeah, the first thing to say, and this is maybe lost on uh, a lot of activists in the United States again, is their success to a certain extent depended on completely non-electoral battles as well. And that's an important point because if it hadn't been for the labor upsurge, for the strike upsurge, for the unionizing upsurge of the 1890s in the UK, there's basically no way you would have had the political power and sort of sense of conflict and consciousness necessary to have founded a mass workers party. So it was in the context of a lot of strikes in which socialists played a leading role that you started to see more and more workers and unions get fed up with first the liberal establishment and eventually the liberal party as a whole. And, you know, you had more conflicts of workers trying to get elected because the liberal party, for instance, passed or supported anti-union laws. And so more and more workers are saying, look, we need to like decisively shift the composition of parliament, including within the liberals, if we're going to be able to continue our organizing efforts. And insofar as their candidates were rejected, that led people to be open to this idea that something more was necessary. And so starting in the 1890s, you had the formation of Independent Labor Party, which was sort of a pragmatic socialist organization that, you know, ran independence. It didn't go so hard against the liberals. Oftentimes it identified with liberals and tried to build a sort of alliance with them. And it stuck with that approach actually up through 1918. And so I Ironically, it was kind of a pragmatic socialism that did start running independent candidacies, but as part of what they called the Progressive Alliance, which was kind of a block with liberals against the Tories that created the space that allowed them eventually to accumulate enough power to be a viable alternative. And that took the form of multiple things. One was they worked within unions. They didn't try to just form a party on their own. They, they, they realized that unless they had support of big workers' organizations, you weren't going to have a mass workers party. So the um, ILP and pragmatic socialists helped the founding of really what you could consider the first big conference of the labor party, even though it didn't use that name, 1900. 
Um, and then over the next three years, and then again in 1906, so in 1903 and then 1906, these pragmatic socialists came up with a deal and proposed a deal with the Liberal Party to sort of share votes, that they would only run in certain constituencies, uh, a limited number of constituencies, um, and they wouldn't challenge the Liberals everywhere if the Liberals would let them basically run in certain places. So ironically, it was by making a deal with like a capitalist-led party that um, the first pragmatic socialists and the Labour Party was able to kind of take the first steps at getting workers represented on an independent basis. And it was on the basis of those blocks and this kind of like limited, slow, but steady, uh, and not fully like all-out war against the liberal approach that workers were elected in 1903, then in 1906. And even though labor was still small, you know, the Liberal Party was still much bigger. By 1906, you had, you know, a significant minority of candidates in Parliament who were elected as independents by what was then 1906 and from then on called the Labor Party. So, you know, it's a messy history. Um, it's not so easy to summarize, but I think in some ways that's the big takeaway is that, you know, what we call like the dirtiness of it in the United States where you're working within the Democrats, you have some steps forward, some steps back. You're, the extent to which you identify with the Liberal Party is not always so clear. And the process through which you separate from that party is quite protracted. That was certainly the case in the UK. And I think we should probably expect something similar here. So, I mean, you know, this definitely, this history resists my attempts to summarize it in a kind of macro historical way. Um, you know, but, uh, at the risk of do trying to do so anyway, cause I'm a podcast host and that's what we try to do. We try to package uh, complexity into a digestible nugget for our listeners. So there's a, there's a, a prevailing pragmatism and a willingness to compromise at the parliamentary level accompanied by a militancy at the social level that would then pay dividends to provide the stage on which they would shine when the Liberal Party fell into disarray in the midst of World War One. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Broadly speaking. Okay, this is difficult. So yeah, it, it narrate that history for us. What, what, what was it about World War One that not only caused the crack up among, you know, parties across Europe, but also inside the Liberal Party in, in the UK? Right. So just taking a step back, 1900, first steps towards the Labour Party. 1906, the Labour Party is officially founded, sort of in an alliance this whole time with the Liberals. And because of the parliamentary as opposed to presidential system, that meant that the Liberal government in 1906 onwards and then 1910 onwards actually depended on Labour Party representatives to survive for the government to stay you know, in power. And so you have a mm -hmm. Labour Party that is really mm -hmm. still, even though it has its own ballot line now, a junior partner to the liberals. And the big decisive shift in that happens during the war, as you mentioned, because the liberal party government, you know, had to take responsibility for what ended up being a disastrous experience, not just in the UK, but really all across the world. You know, unlike World War II, in which there was this kind of compelling anti-fascist threat at the time, World War I really was just a catastrophe. And, and there was an initial upsurge in patriotism in most countries. And that didn't last that long. Um, workers were dying by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions on a European scale. And the Liberal Party had to own that. 
And what ended up happening was the Liberal Party, which not unlike the Democrats, had a left wing, even, you know, up through 1918, you know, more progressive, more uh, oriented towards trying in some ways to uphold interests, not only of capitalists, but also, you know, the people more generally. The party split, the party split over not just military tactics, but the extent to which uh, the military offensive should sort of crowd out social reforms. And uh, it was that internal split that created the space for the Labor Party in 1918 in the first election post-war to finally seize the initiative to differentiate itself completely from the liberals, to run in all constituencies, which they hadn't been doing before, and to try to seize the moment to become the second party in the UK electoral system. And they succeeded. And there's, you know, there's maybe a, a big lesson there too, is that part of what we're doing is in our control, you know, uh, in the United States or in the UK, certainly doing smart politics as opposed to stupid politics and building power as opposed to being marginal is necessary. It's a necessary condition if we're going to have a mass political representation of our own, but it's probably not sufficient. The reality is, and this is hard for people to kind of grapple with sometimes, is that we also sometimes just need the other side, our enemies or our erstwhile allies sometimes to fall into disarray and to get divided in the same way that we often are. And we need to be able to seize those openings when they arise. We need to be sufficiently powered to seize them. But that doesn't mean that it's just our efforts alone. And in the UK, that was certainly the case. They build up power to be able to seize the moment. But if it hadn't been for this division within the ranks of you know, the ruling class, I don't think you would have seen the formation of the Labour Party in 1918, perhaps later, but not at that point, certainly. Right. I think we can very often underestimate like the strength of the ruling class. They don't get their power by, you know, virtue of like their ideas or their, you know, position of birth alone. <laughs> Although that is a powerful force. Uh, they get it from the, you know, the uh, the mode of production and reproduction of society, which is to say everything, <laughs> almost everything. <laughs> All right. So, you know, let's contextualize. Let's pull back. We've got to wrap up here in just a minute. Um, I want to give you a, a, a chance to kind of get to the, the, the end of the historical period that your article covers, but we would be remiss in um, calling forth names like, uh, you know, Ralph Miliband. I would be remiss in name checking Leo Panich as I do nearly every episode these days and uh, unapologetically. So uh, if we didn't also talk about the fact that this labor party in, in, in it, in and through its formation, perhaps, and, and perhaps even because of its formation had to not only give up some of, some of its more radical and revolutionary aims, but ultimately had to end up superintending the British capitalist state through, you know, through crises. And so there's this con there's, there's this contradictory position that working class politicians find themselves in when they're contesting for, and then possibly even running at the helm of a, a liberal capitalist democracy, such as the one in Britain. Talk about some of the complexities there. And if, if that's not a broad enough topic for several episodes, I don't know what is, but I just kind of wanted to let, uh, pose a question yeah, an and see, see, see where, see where you think we should go next. Uh, what, what comes to mind? Yeah, no, that's an important point because you know, some of the responses I've gotten uh, since we published the article is people are just like, who cares? Labor party sucks. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I suspect I suspect my British audience is not going to be thrilled with this episode because they're like, "Fuck it, what do you get off it, mate?" You know, like, what do you? This is yeah, nothing exactly. to be excited about. What are you talking about? Some of this is just like the right. sort of like the so, the despair that we feel in the U.S. is is something that you know can that I, I'm not sure many other leftists in other countries can quite recognize. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I digress. Yeah, so no, it's an important question. The, there's a few answers to it. One is just we we should say that the only thing worse than like a reformist workers party is no workers party at all and the fact is even compared to the uk today the united states really across the board is in a worse political situation that you know we have almost our unionization rate for instance is half more than half of what the british labor movement is at still Mm -hmm. we don't have medicare for all we don't have anything like the british uh nhs and so for all of its limitations we, we should just acknowledge that the labor party did constitute a crystallization of class organization and class consciousness and an instrument, even if, you know, uh, not the best instrument for winning social democratic gains that we still haven't won in the United States. Mm -hmm. So for all of its limitations, it did constitute something that we should aspire to, even if it's not the end goal. And the question then is, well, why, why, why the limitations? As we saw, the alternative to something like Labor Party, unfortunately, was not, you know, more of a revolutionary workers' party, something like the German Social Democrats at its more radical phase. You know, that was tried. Revolutionary socialists tried to build power and they didn't succeed. It would have been no party at all. And so part of the reason just has to do with the political context and the level of radicalism of the British working class as a whole, which meant that you didn't have millions of workers at all points so disenfranchised from the system uh, and alienated from it that they were willing to, you know, espouse revolutionary socialism. Nevertheless, it is certainly the case that the Labour Party fell well short of its potentiality and came up against its own base over and over and over again. And part of it has to do with what, as you mentioned, Ralph Miliband called like the parliamentary cretinism, really, of the Labour Party, in which even though, as I mentioned earlier, it was mass struggle, working class militancy that created the upsurge through which the Labour Party could um, arise, that type of combination of electoral and workplace militancy increasingly got pushed away by the leadership of the party. And this is what Leo Panitch and Miliband and a lot of others have talked about as sort of the social democratization of workers' parties. There's going to necessarily be a strong push, um, particularly in the leadership on the party as a whole, to integrate yourself into the existing political regime rather than seeking to transform it. And together with that, um, suborning everything to the electoral arena rather than combining that with um, building up mass power from below and sort of doing what Panitch and Miliband called class formation, helping the working class build up its capacity to transform the world. And I don't think we should say that the Labour Party was fully a failure either, though. The fact is, by the late 70s, the Labour Party again sort of made a shift to the left and you had a mass revolutionary or, you know, at least a radical social democratic tradition and left in the labor party led by people like Tony Benn that posed a real alternative within the labor party to the party establishment. There's no equivalent to that in the American system. So in some ways you can see that although social democracy has its limitations, it creates the framework through which that class can organize and it creates the possibility if radicals know how to sort of relate to it through which you can get to moments like you did in the late seventies in 
the UK or Sweden or elsewhere, in which the left and the working class is strong enough that you can have a serious contestation over the formation through parliamentary means of a workers' party government in some form that could take decisive breaks towards a rupture or at least a contestation against the capitalist system. The Labour Party had that potential and it came close to doing that. So the question isn't really like, did the Labour Party suck? You know, what were its limitations? Everybody acknowledges those. The real question is, what does the left do today so that we can be strong enough when we get to similar types of turning points that we can win the fight for perspectives and we can help lead that party towards fighting the capitalists rather than accommodating it? And that is an extremely difficult challenge. There's no shortcuts to it. But I do think that that's ultimately not a case against a workers' party, but precisely for it. There's the term. I just scribbled down in my notes, no shortcuts, and, and you, you got it out before I did. It's just, uh, it's inevitable, our our, uh, our friend Jane McAlevey's uh, rallying cry. And it ain't the truth in this case. You know, there are no institutional, organizational shortcuts or end, run around, end runs around just doing politics and and winning class power in, in the balance uh, of your of your national international context and and in this this party history illustrates that perfectly um, you know was the labor party perhaps the most enthusiastic parliamentary and perhaps even capitalist party in some instances uh, throughout British history yes uh, would we have had the um, upsurges of, of Benism and um, and, and the Corbinite moment, which is so inspirational and will continue to be inspirational across the world without that history. No, this is dialectics. My friend, this is where Eric, this is where we pause and we, we rub our uh, neck beards dialectics. Uh, and you think about that. No, but seriously, this is, this is, this is contradictory historical development and that's all there is. There aren't these um, sort of perfect fairy, fairy stories. Um, let's wrap up. We, we haven't gotten quite to the end of the history that you're, you cover in your piece, but are there any other kind of takeaways uh, from your essay or from perhaps our contemporary moment that you'd like to hit on before we part ways? Yeah, I think just as we're reflecting a little bit more on you know, what this means for the United States, yeah. the, the purpose of the article in large part was to just force myself to learn this history and see what lessons we could draw from. And there's a lot of different ones. And we've touched on a lot of them, you know, to look at the process of class formation and building class power as a process, right? So not as just something you either do or don't do. And, and understanding then that like politics is always going to be context specific. So we're at the early stages of that process today. Um, we're not at the end of it. And thinking that we are sort of at the, just on the eve of a break is going to lead to bad politics. But that doesn't mean we need to close ourselves off strategically from envisioning what a break uh, could look like and why it would why it would be necessary and why it is necessary if we're going to win social democracy and let alone socialism for workers to have you know a party that represents our side and that can seem so distant i think to most people in the united states that it's not necessarily like what i would lead on when i'm at the doors campaign for <laughs> bernie or yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's not that type of thing it's not you know, it doesn't have that level of resonance with people because a lot of people still just feel so disenfranchised that they don't even think Bernie could win um, or that even if Bernie were elected, would it make a difference? You know, because people just haven't seen the government do good things for them in recent memory. So to think that, you know, uh, in that context, we're going to build mass workers parties, just uh, a fantasy. That being said, you know, our role, I think, as socialists is to 
combine a fight today with a vision towards where we need to go. And it's not always so obvious how that long-term vision shapes our practices today. But I would say that if you don't have that vision, A, it's easy to get demoralized. It's easy to get sort of succumb to the uh, inevitable demoralization that comes with the setbacks. So you need a long-term vision to sustain you. We also need a long-term vision if you want to win people over. You know, we need to be able to provide a compelling vision for how we build class power and win the society we need. That doesn't mean we need to be rigid about it. I think we should acknowledge the extent to which some things are hypothetical and are, are ambiguous. But our role can't just be to fight for the short-term struggles, although that's probably what we need to center. But it also has to be to combine that with some sort of strategic vision for building the society we need. And that's there's all sorts of tensions and difficulties doing that, but I don't see a way around it, especially if we want to avoid replicating the limitations of social democracy, which in the name of sort of short-term pragmatism often ended up getting sucked into the very system that it initially set out to combat. Right on. I mean, I brought you on and not because this, this essay ticked all the right boxes in, in my nerditude. Uh, you've got the, you got the UK labor party. You've got the, the kind of, um, the conflict between radical revolutionary politics and, and more kind of, um, pragmatist, uh, electoral, uh, you know, um, inside the inside outside approach, if you will, it just ticked all the right boxes. Like I'd have brought you on regardless, but it's, it's even more topical now, I think in the post Bernie moment, as you said, like we, I talked about this with Mike Utrecht in an episode that, to be honest with you, I'm not sure is going to air before or after this one. So listeners, be patient. You may have already heard it or it may it may be uh, forthcoming. Uh, but uh, we talked about uh, this as well. It's like, you know, we've got to get we have to sort of recalibrate in our post Bernie moment, don't we? Because it's not just the the threat of demoralization that you talked about. It's this kind of. um this sort of um, hyper faux politicization, which is really just an expression of what I've talked about before. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry if this is maybe a little bit in bad faith, perhaps it's in bad faith. I don't know, but I think it's an accurate diagnosis. <laughs> if I may be a, a chin scratching uh, psychoanalyst, a social psychoanalyst for a moment, I think it's a, it's a symptom of a left that is chasing the rush, right? They just want to feel alive again in this in, in a similar way that the Bernie moment made them feel alive. And so they're they're pumping an artificial sense of urgency into questions that just quite frankly don't deserve deserve it. Right. <laughs> you know? um, and, and, and so we need to learn to just relax and, and, and lean into some of these debates and, and, and learn to deal with each other comradely. And this is, Hey, I'm talking to myself as much as anybody. I'm, I'm an emotional guy by, uh, maybe I don't come off that way on the microphone in my NPR mode sometimes, but just, I'm an emotionally charged guy. And I, in the past have had a tendency as we all have to place too much emphasis on certain questions in certain ways. And we all just need to chill the fuck out. Eric is what I'm suggesting. Yeah, I think um, that's right. I think, I think that's right. And from the second you realize how hard politics is, it means that inevitably some of the things that you and me and your listeners think today will be proved wrong, you know, yeah. maybe later, maybe sooner. Um, and I've just been through that process so many times where things that I thought were going to happen didn't happen. I had to reassess. So I think that just obliges a level of humility to us and comradeliness that people were arguing with, you know, uh, we should assume good faith. We should assume maybe, maybe the, the events will prove them right. And if we treat each other sort of in that sense as comrades who are all making wagers, I think that's going to build up the kind of culture of organization that is 
you know, attractive to people who are yeah. beyond our ranks because yeah. nobody wants to join a fractious, you know, all out war movement. People want to join something that's building power, that makes inclusive, that can have disagreements, but without a way that just like makes you uh, an enemy overnight. Right. Yeah. Spot on. All right. We've got to let you go. Thanks for uh, giving us your time. You're over there on the, uh, on the West coast. You had to get up at a, an ungodly hour to conduct this interview. So I wanted to appreciate you uh, for that. Everybody should check out this article really quickly before I let you go. I want to give you an opportunity to plug the book project that you're working on. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Tell us about that. Yeah. So in writing this article and doing this research and uh, previous to that, I'd written about a similar experience in the United States around the Minnesota Farmer Labor Party, which was the um, sort of most important third party in U.S. history, which is, uh, or at least in the 20th century, which was also founded in kind of this messy, dirty break type dynamic. It led me to think that maybe there's space for writing a book about this, because I think we do need to get these arguments out beyond just kind of the usual suspects in our, you know, in our existing groups and our existing friend networks. And so, yeah, so I, I'm writing a book. I think it's going to be coming out with Verso probably uh, next year on this history, trying to talk about, you know, what we can learn about, not only just the tactics to build a new party, but I think part of the book and what I'm working on, and it's just as exciting as just what are class politics? You know, like we use that term, but what does it actually mean? And and, and what, what were they doing a century ago that allowed parties and organizations to root themselves uh, amongst the broader working class in a way that to a large extent, we still haven't done today. You know, what, what was it about their focus, their prioritization, their organizational techniques that allowed them to build class organization, class power, which we've lost. And that tradition has been lost and it's been beaten down. It's been substituted by a lot of other things. And what does it take to rescue that tradition? And what are the kind of like strategies and tactics we can build in that direction? So that's what the book's about. Keep your eye out for it. It should be out uh, next year, I hope. Yeah, I'll, I'll be snagging you up for another interview uh, if, if we're fortunate and blessed to be in similar situations this time. I, you know, I, I suspect you're going to be going over a lot of the similar history that uh, Thomas Frank laid out when he was on the show a couple of months ago. Unfortunately, I, I love Thomas. He's a brilliant guy, an incredibly engaging guy to have on your show. But this this kind of uh, what, what go what falls under the sign of populist history has uh, been left up to progressive and liberal historians for long enough. It's time that a good socialist dug his or her heels into that history to pull out like the specific socialist lessons. Cause there are many, many, many resonances there with uh, the kind of project that we have before us, given that America is not, doesn't look identical to, I don't know, Manchester, England and, and, you know, in the 1840s, <laughs> you know, surprise, surprise. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. So yeah, come back on the show real soon to talk about that. Eric Blanc, thanks again for coming on the show. Your piece will be linked to in the show notes. Everybody should check it out. Thanks again. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for all your work. And that concludes today's episode of DPS. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Eric Blanc is always a joy to bring on the show. We've got a number of really great guests coming your way here in the coming weeks. As I mentioned in the intro to today's episode, we've got Brad Crowder from Collective Power Network. That one is really fun. I have not linked up with anyone inside of Collective Power Network as of yet. They're a relatively new caucus, you might say. They emerged in the lead up to the 2019 convention. So that's just to say they're new in the sense that they don't go all the way back to 2017. New-ish. But, you know, in the last couple of years, I haven't had anybody who has, you know, kind of a representative of their particular position on DPS. And so it was high time that I did that. So that'll be fun. 
I've got Chris Maizano. I've got James Schneider, former co-founder of Momentum, over there representing the UK left. Lots of good stuff coming your way. I'm really pumped about it. But as always, I need your support to keep this project chug-a-lugging down the tracks. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. And hey, if I raise enough money, maybe you'll never have to hear this pitch ever again. I know it's obnoxious. I don't like doing it. You don't like listening to it. So, I don't know. Somebody call up Elon Musk. Get him drunk one night. Uh, have him lose a couple hands of high-stakes poker. And, uh, and then take that money and uh, donate it to the left media ecosystem so all of us podcasters can just do politics and stop thinking about fucking Patreon all the time. <laughs> but until then, I appreciate your generous support. Again, that's patreon.com slash deadpundits. All right. Same time, same place next week, perhaps. Or, hey, whenever I feel like releasing the episode. You know, life is tough. Things get busy. But uh, we'll see you guys next week. Take care.